0: Hello, and welcome to Tech Live. Stephanie Christopher here, Chief Executive of the Executive Connection. Tech connects CEOs, executives, and business owners to the world's largest business leader network. Today, our guest is Bram Connolly, a published author, keynote speaker, and group training facilitator, who is passionate about leadership and helping teams to develop organisational resilience. Bram spent 20 years in the Australian Defence Force, 15 years of which were spent in the Australian Special Forces, and we will talk about that soon. In 2020, he was awarded the Distinguished Service Medal for Leadership in the Australia Day Awards. Bram is the Managing Director and founder of Hindsight Leadership and Resilience, an enterprise that seeks to show that leadership is an energy transference. He's also written two military thrillers and just told a great story about sitting on Bondi Beach and there was a woman next to him reading one of his books. (laughs) So, Bram, welcome to Tech Live.
1: Thanks so much for having me. Here we are.
0: Yeah, here we are. Mm. And we're being recorded, chatting being recorded. And what uh, what a great background. Mm. We were just starting, or I was starting to ask you about the movie Long Tan Mm. that I saw the other day. Mm. And I guess I was just interested because it's such an interesting part of history.
1: Mm. And it will be an iconic movie, I think, in the future. Yeah. yeah.
0: So what did you think of it?
1: I think they did a good job. I think the extra specialists um, that were part of it were, for me, was the best part of it, having actual people there from, from you know, six RAR as extras. Yeah. Um, I didn't love the way they portrayed the officers in the movie. I'm not sure that was true to form. I yep. think that was a little that was a little bit British glibly type. Yep. Which they're
0: the bad was, guys, and the guys on the field are left on their own.
1: Yeah, and again, that would have been the producers. You know, they've worked out a way that it's probably going to appeal to a certain people. But yeah, yeah, I thought the movie was brilliant. Yeah.
0: Did that happen at Long Tan? That the officers were.
1: I can only assume that the officers were as good as the officers we have now, and I think you know we have one of the greatest leadership, you know, academies in ADFA and then and mm. Royal Military College, and I assume that the officers in Vietnam would have been very very similar to what they were in my career mm. in Somalia and Afghanistan, Timor, National Counterterrorism Team. All mm. the officers I ever dealt with were and myself, all the officers I ever dealt with I thought were were very, very good.
0: Mm. Yeah, okay. Mm. So let's talk a little bit about your military career and then the segue into how that informs what you're doing now.
1: Yes, because we don't have much time.
0: I know (laughs) we don't, but it's really interesting. Yeah. Can you tell us, because I've heard you tell the story before and it's a really good one Mm. as far as resilience and bounce goes, Mm. tell us about your special forces.
1: Oh, gosh. Okay, so... Long story short, well, just my career quickly, um, I joined the Army at 17, found myself in Somalia at 19. Then not long after that deployment, I decided that, well, hey, I must be kind of special because I'm 19. I have an Australian Active Service Medal.
0: (laughs) You Uh, hadn't heard the song, God Help Me, I was only 19. (laughs) I
1: might as well go to Special Air Service Regiment because it's obviously the pinnacle of what you could do in the Army at the time. So I applied for SAS. Um, was successful in going over to do the selection course, and again treated like that, like everything else in my life. Which was, oh, I'll be awesome at this. Yeah. No humility as a nineteen-year-old. Got off the bus. And, and where was this? That was that was actually in Perth. Yeah. Got off the bus and was presented with the largest human I've ever seen in my life, <laughs> who was wearing an SAS beret. And I think I quit in my mind about then yeah forty eight hours later, I found a really good excuse um, in that my back twinged a little bit when I picked up a pack and I was like that's me done so i told I told everyone, Oh, yeah, I hurt my back yeah and um it wasn't for a few weeks later, it was about two months later I was on a tracking course up in Townsville, and the all the guys were sort of milling around outside of what what is known as the Tully Hilton, which is actually just a big structure in the jungle. It's raining outside, and we're all there talking about the day. And then conversation led to SAS. Yeah. Some guys talking about how they're going to go next year, and then someone said, "Oh, Bram, you just did selection for SAS, didn't you?" Yeah. And of course, I've done the whole, "Yeah, yeah, I just did that." Yeah. And they're like, "Oh, how far did you get?" And I said, "Oh, I don't know. I think it was like, you know, maybe second week or something like that." And then one of the guys goes, "No, that's not right. No, wow. you withdrew own request on the second day."
0: Wow.
1: And and I was at that point where I really thought to myself. First of all, I'd been caught out, so I was I was very embarrassed. Yes, but I also knew that I, it just felt like this moment in my life where if I went down this path of continually denying and and not owning my own problems and mistakes, that I was just going to become a liar. Yeah. So I just said, "Yeah, okay, yeah, you got me. That's a fair call."
0: And you said that at the time. Yeah,
1: yeah, I did. I, I did, and I I walked away very sheepishly. I don't think I ever talked to that person again, but yeah. it was a it was a life lesson that I'm very pleased that I had because it has shaped it would profoundly shaped the way I approach everything in my life since. Mm.
0: Um, in what way, in particular?
1: I'm open and honest and humble about the things that I do, and if I fail them, I'll tell you why I failed them. And if I'm successful, then I'm gracious in that. Yeah. Um, and generally, it's not because of anything I've done for me to be successful yeah. anyway. It's everyone around me.
0: Don't be too humble. But, yeah,
1: yeah, yeah well, that's also a trap. But, yeah, so for me that, that story sort of leads all the way into me getting into special forces the second time around because I, I approached it with complete readiness. I completely looked at that and went, right, I need to be completely prepared for that, which is one of the foundational pillars, what I talk about with team resilience and leadership. I prepared myself for it. I was on the first of the modern commando courses and I passed that in 1997 and I was a team commander at the time. So I had to take people with me and try and get them through it. And then I was on the first of the national counterterrorism team courses in 2002 for the second tactical assault group. I was a founding member of that and I passed that course, which was arduous and one of the hardest things I've ever done. Mm. And um, and then there was the officer selection board uh, in 2006 and I went into that completely prepared And that was, it was a really difficult day, but because I had prepared so much, it just felt like I had the most perfect day. Every question I was asked by that board, I knew the answer to. Mm. Every position that I was put in psychologically, I knew how to handle. And that sort of set me up for success to then end up in Afghanistan as a platoon commander and then be promoted to major and then do my last couple of years in the regular army in special forces before building this consultancy, hindsight, leadership yeah. resilience.
0: What a lucky thing that you were at the Tully Hilton.
1: I think I think that is the single moment in my life where I could have gone in one direction or the other. And I think I I don't know how, but I knew it at that very moment. Yeah.
0: So our our mutual colleague Gudge Ravachandra talks mm. about what happens next. Mm. What did you do next? Mm. And that that's really interesting. Mm. So thinking about how you've leveraged that experience and your life in the armed forces and, and a considerable life mm. into the work you do now with leadership and, and re- resilience and teams. What are the main things that you bring now to that?
1: There was a point where I was looking around, I was answering questions. I'd written a couple of military thrillers after leaving the army. So they're Matt Rick's adventures right through Alan and Unwin. Just to give them a plug. <laughs> and I, I wrote these two books. And Five then, stars, by the and way. Then, yeah. yeah, thank you. And then I started to receive emails from people saying, hey, great book. You're a leader. How do I solve this? Mm. And then other questions like, hey, I've got this leader. How do I solve that? Mm. And I, I think you're fairly silly if you don't see that the market is reaching out to you. Mm. And I, I realized the market was reaching out to me for leadership. Mm. And I thought to myself, if not me, then who? Mm. Who's going to do this with the experiences that I had? From Afghanistan, so I created a little consultancy, and it was a leadership consultancy. And people told me I was crazy because no one's going to buy your services to, to teach leadership. Mm. Well, mm. best revenge in life is to be successful. <laughs> um, and yeah, and then I just found that what I was doing was going into companies or dealing with individuals and talking about those those pillars that I see are fundamental to leaders, which is you know preparation, communication, and positivity. Mm. So. In that line, I look back over my career and I did. I prepared for absolutely every eventuality.
0: Which you have to do in the military you anyway.
1: Do. Well, you well, you do in life yeah. actually. Yeah, Otherwise, yeah. you're just bouncing around waiting for the universe to give you some whimsical clue. Yeah. Um, and then communication. I couldn't believe how many leaders out there were amazing leaders and don't communicate anything. Mm. So they fall short. And not just not communicate everything, but they don't put the energy into the communication. You have to be able to bounce from person to person to person. I tell a really great story during my keynote, which I which people really resonate with. Do you want me to tell it now? Yeah. Have we got time? Yeah. Okay. So I'll, I'll do the abridged version. So I took my platoon in Afghanistan 2010 on a vehicle patrol, and we went to a an American Ford operating base down near Kandahar, and we, we harbored up in there. And the American colonel came over to me, and he said, hey, Bram, how are you going? I won't do the accent. He said, hey, Bram, how are you going? Just be aware every night we get rocketed here. So at about six o'clock, you need to get inside your armored vehicles and just hunker down for a while.
0: Oh, right, <laughs> And okay. I'm,
1: I'm like, okay, not optimal. Well, what are you going to do about that? And he said, well, we can't really do anything about it because it's coming from out there on on that ridgeline on those hills about 10 kilometers away. Yeah. And I said, well, why don't you drive out there and, and do an ambush? And why make don't them you drive stop doing it. And, patrol? Yeah, yeah. and he said, well, there's IEDs everywhere, so we can't take our vehicles out. And I said, well, why don't you walk out there? And he said- what, 10 kilometers? And I went, yeah. And he goes, well, the villages aren't there. They're the other side of the mountain. They're about 20 kilometers out. And he said, and we just don't have the time or the effort to be able to do that. And I said, well, you know what? I've got a couple of days. So tonight, my platoon and I will climb over your fence and we will patrol out there and we'll go and clear those villages, which, by the way, hadn't seen any foreigners in hundreds of years. Right. Let alone during-
0: Right. Yeah, they, A that, war. They were, that,
1: yeah. they were that disparate compared to the rest of the population. They were that far removed from everything. Yeah. No one went out there except the Taliban. And so that night we climbed over the wall, all 35 of us, mm-hmm. with our packs on. It was about 40 degrees. Sun had just gone down, packs on. And because we're commandos, we're carrying ammunition and guns and everything, but not much else. Mm. So we start walking, and we've got about a 25, 20 to 25 metres between each person in a big long line at night on night vision goggles. Because if, and it sounds morbid, but if someone steps on an IED, then you only lose one person, yep. not five or six. So, yep. so it's a big long line. You, you can do the mass, 35 people, 20 metres apart. Yeah. 20 kilometres we're going to travel. We get to the where the rockets usually get launched from and there's nothing there and we, get, we start to go up into the mountains and now I've got overhead I've got a Predator drone whose pilot, by the way, was in California and the drone comes out of Kandahar so he'd been telling me on my headset about the beach he'd been to that day so it was a very <laughs> surreal. Weird. Yeah, yeah, strange. Anyway, when we became friends actually over that deployment he would talk to me most nights. Anyway, he says So
0: the Predator drone is one of
1: ours. ours. It's the piece of equipment you want if you're special forces and patrolling along, because it's armed with a couple of Hellfire missiles and a lot of lasers and it can see and no one can see it and it's very quiet. Wow. So it's up there and
0: We were, by the way, going to talk about leadership, but this is really well, (laughs) Well, this is leadership. This is leadership. Yeah.
1: Trust me. Anyway, he comes on the headset and says to me, Oh Bram, you've got to stop. There's a couple of people up ahead, about two hundred meters ahead. And I can't quite make it out, but they look like they might have weapons. And I've gone, okay, no worries. So we stop. Now, all of our interpersonal radios are off. And the reason they're off is because we don't want to create a big electronic signature, but also because we don't want to create lots of noise. So I've got a little earpiece in so I can hear him. So we stop. And it's now about six degrees. It was 40 when we left. Oh, my We're carrying goodness. a lot of weight. Everyone is sodden through sweat and, and freezing to yeah. death, literally to death, because yeah. the temperature will go below zero tonight. Yeah. It's now two in the morning. So we wait, and they don't move. And the drone keeps circling at 20,000 feet overhead, and they still haven't moved. And now- as with leadership, I say, right, I need to come up with contingency plans in my head. What what are my plans? So I've come up with three plans in my head. Yes. What I'm going to do if they don't move, what I'm going to do if they do move, what I'm going to do if they're the enemy. Yeah. Anyway, so I've got these three plans and I stand up and I start to walk down the line. I'm about three from the front, so I go up there first and tell my scouts what I'm going to do and then I start walking down the line and I tell every single guy down that line personally what's happening and what my three plans are. I am using energy, transference and communication as a leadership principle. I'm going to tell every person. The reason I tell every person is because if I don't tell them, mm. then there's a gap and yep. they'll fill that gap yes, with their own intent, their own understanding. yes. Or the guy next to them will pick up and slowly walk over and go, hey, do you know
0: what's going on? Yep,
1: and the other person will go. I don't know what's going on, yeah. and then they'll make up what's going on. So I have to be proactive in that moment. I get down to the end, and then we'll call him. Jono comes up over the radio of the drone. He's like, "Oh yeah, they were goat herders, and they've gone now." Oh, thanks, mate. So, oh. so we, so I now communication. Have to walk, I now have to walk nearly a kilometre to get back to the front of the line. We pick up and then we patrol on, and we patrol. Into- so, how
0: long had you been standing waiting while the goat herders were?
1: That was an hour, right? Okay. Yeah,
0: at six degrees. Yep.
1: Yeah, oh, well, it would have been less by now, too. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, and then so we pick up and we move on and we and we and we continue patrolling. Now, as I said, I have to own that space because if I don't, someone else will own it. Mm. That's a really fundamental part of leadership is that is owning that communication, owning the narrative, and being able to put it out at the pace it needs to be put out. And then we went down to the village. We patrolled through the village. They woke up very surprised, and they were great. Yeah, They hadn't seen anyone. The Taliban had been coming in and out of there for, for months. Mm-hmm. The Taliban didn't come back after we'd been through there for other reasons. Yeah. But, yeah, but we sorted it all out. And it was it – was, we went back to the American base that evening. In fact, my vehicles drove out of that base and went across the road. They said they couldn't drive through and picked yeah. up all the IDs and then picked us up. And then we continued on our way. And the Americans were left standing there going, How are, Who the are these guys? Yeah. <laughs> well, they, well, I'm used to working with American Special Forces and, and um, also the Navy SEALs, um, which were brilliant. And these, these guys were a line infantry unit with, with a, an artillery unit attached to them. So mm. they, they weren't of the same caliber. But you know what? They had been there for the best part of 18 months.
0: Just getting hammered every night yep. at 6 o'clock.
1: Yeah. And, and they were. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. They were amazing, actually. Mm. You know, when you think about the training they'd had compared to us, mm. you know, and they were doing a great job and they were holding the line. So they were holding that line there so that we could use that road between Kandahar up to Tarenkow and then on obviously up through up through all the way up to um, Kabul, which is there's Ford operating bases all the way up there and yeah. they're just manned by these patriots.
0: Yeah, it's amazing. Mm. So I heard preparedness, absolutely, and I love that. Mm. All the options in your yeah. head communication that was given and, mm. and your communication was what it needed to be at the time. Mm. You had people all, you know, distance out so you had to go and talk to each one. Mm. Tell me about where positivity fitted into that.
1: Yeah, I am 100% about positivity in everything. Mm. There's, I've never seen anyone be led by a, a leader who's a pessimist. I just don't know any pessimistic leaders who are successful. Mm. So it's, it always pays to be the optimist. And if something goes wrong, you have to look at, the opportunity in that problem. I think mm. Garge calls it Yeah, which I think is pretty cool.
0: I think I've told him to stop using it. Have you? <laughs> it's a terrible word. But anyway, it's the problatunity.
1: Yeah. yeah. No, so positivity is everything. And I learnt that early on. And we used to do – and I and I know how this works because I, I, I've I felt it. So on my mountain warfare course, we would have this thing where you have to do a non-emotional. So you, your helmet, for instance, might be full of water and it's minus six degrees. And the guys will uh-huh. the guys will call you out and go, oh, you got to put your helmet on, and you go, yeah, no worries, no big deal, this is easy. And just by that self talk, you'd put uh-huh. this freezing cold helmet on and the water, going down the small of your back, and it's not that big a deal. But if you try and go and do that, thinking, oh, this is going to suck, I'm going to hate this, uh, yeah. and it does suck. But the fact that now everyone's looking at you and you and you make everyone laugh, there's a power and positivity. A it's a superpower.
0: You have to do a non-emotional.
1: Yeah. To be emotional.
0: <laughs> well, you also have to do that as a leader sometimes yep. because we all have to make really tough decisions. Yeah. And and it's interesting as a leader, I feel myself go into that zone mm. and think, okay, it's time to just tune out now. And actually I right. think non-emotional.
1: Well, think about that. If you want to think about leadership in, in that vein and doing a non-emotional, think about it, go a step further and think about that drone. Yeah. That drone is 20,000 feet above us. It sees the big picture. I often say mm. to leaders, be detached from the situation, take a step back, become that drone, look down on what's going on. Viktor Frankl says in between stimulus and response is a space, you own that space. Yeah. I think more leaders should be owning that space. Mm. Take a step back, become the drone, look at the problem mm. from the other person's perspective, own the space and don't be emotional in, in your responses. And I, I, honestly, if, if leaders just did more of that, they'd be more successful at every level from the junior level through to the C-suite.
0: It's just making the time to have that space, isn't it?
1: Yeah. But, I mean, it doesn't need to be hours and hours. Either. No, it
0: doesn't. Well, it's that whole – I mean, and this gets to the cybersecurity conversation we had about mm. the the bad guys just trying to get you to break your OODA loop. Right. That you observe and act.
1: Yeah. Interestingly – if you want to go down this rabbit warren for a moment, mm. I was playing around on Twitter last week. Tulsi, uh, Tulsi, Goddard, is it? Anyway, an American Democrat who mm-hmm. I quite quite liked. I thought I'd tweet something about how I liked her position in the in the next American election. Yeah, and there was a flood of responses on Twitter. They were great. And then you've got John Doe, we'll call him yeah. from from Suffolk, who owns a you know pie shop. Yeah and he weighs into the debate about American gun laws and the second amendment and all this sort of garbage. Yeah. But he he doesn't exist. He's not there is no guy called that. That is someone that is a state sponsored tweet from another country yeah. that is conquering and dividing. Yeah, right. And that's what and that's what's happening on social media now is that there's this continual it's a cyberspace problem but there's a, there's this continual narrative being controlled by They've realised how powerful this weapon is to divide us socially and that's what's that's what's occurring.
0: It's really terrifying, isn't it, when you know about it. So back to positivity mm. and back to my long tan movie mm. that my husband's not going to believe I was actually watching as intently as, <laughs> as he'll now hear. There was a bit when it all looked bad, and it back Mm. to one of the old movies where you're really up against it in the fort, and um, Mm. and they, you know, pretended they had more soldiers, but it was it was looking bad, and the the guy, I'm sorry, I don't even know his rank, just got back before his
1: platoon. Thank you,
0: and kind of gave a speech Mm. and said, "This is who we are," you know. (laughs) Yes. And no. What? It was great. Yeah. Because I thought of. Henry V, naturally, right. of Once More Unto the Breach, dear friend. Yes. You know, and I yeah. thought, okay, but what I thought, what I liked about it in mm. the movie was he was terrified. Mm. After he made his speech, the guy in front of him said, we're not going home, are we? We're mm. not getting out of this. Mm. You know, it was authentic. He yeah. was terrified, but at least it was kind of positivity. Yeah, I had
1: a moment like that in Afghanistan before we did a, a time-sensitive target operation yeah. with helicopters, but it was a joke. Right. And And... <laughs> And I stood up in front of my guys and, and said, you know, you're not doing this, you're not doing this for the Anzac spirit, yeah. you're not doing this for the war and terror, you're doing this for the guy left and right of you, yeah. it's all about mateship and let's go and do this. And it was all a bit of a tongue in cheek. Yeah. And then we had one of the most chaotic, violent six and a half hours of our lives. Right. And when we came back, guys came up to me and said, I really want to thank you boss for, for what you said before that. And. It was only two or three guys that said that. It wasn't like every person. Yeah. I don't want to paint the scene here to make it look like I'm some sort of a But there's genius. a movie in
0: it. In the movie, who will play you.
1: Well, <laughs> but the, the fact yeah. of the matter was that there was people who heard yeah. those words that didn't see it for the tongue-in-cheek it was, or if they did, the moment where it was required, they drew on that. Yeah. And, and so that to me, is a, it is a part of positivity. And Australian dark humour is well known. Yes. And I've lived and breathed that my whole career, and it absolutely, it absolutely makes things better.
0: Yeah, what I liked about that that scene but extrapolating to other mm. situations is it also it put humanity into it.
1: Mm.
0: Which I which I liked. Yeah. So how can you do that as a leader then in really tough times? Mm. When actually someone spoke to me the other day and said there's a business I know that payroll is now late, getting mm. later and later. Mm. I'm worrying about that business, well clearly you would be. Mm. So if things are that grim, mm. how do you show positivity as a leader?
1: I think in the first instance it's about being able to address people mm-hmm. and being able to being able to show them that you understand what's going on but maybe also taking ownership of of why that's happening. Mm-hmm. And so in the first instance saying, "Hey, listen, you know, perhaps something I've done has amounted to this or perhaps it's the way I'm leading, I'm not sure. You can you can let me know." But this is the circumstances and let's try and remove the roadblocks for this and, and make this a better situation. Mm-hmm. Because if you come into something like this with any sort of blame or in any way saying, Hey, these numbers don't look good. Yeah. Why aren't these numbers good guys? Yeah. Then then the defensive mechanism of that group exacerbates the problem. Whereas if you can a leader's responsibility is ultimately to burden all of the issues and problems. Mm-hmm and if you can burden them up front and then slowly release them people will take the problems away from you. Mm. No no you don't know boss it's not like that. It's not your fault. Let's mm. let's go to, let's go and have a look at this from another angle. Mm. Perhaps we've done something wrong in this mm. department. And and so I think in that first instance a leader can show positivity by also showing that they have the ultimate responsibility. It's a lonely job. Mm. You've got all the responsibility and very little control being a leader. That's right. And I'm not saying that the military leadership is the panacea of all things corporate by any means, and I've learned more about leadership since leaving the army, yeah, but I've looked at it from the prism of my army leadership and then and then had aha moments in the corporate sector and gone, "Oh, well, this is that theory. But the other aspect to all of this is that humans are intrinsically messy, really messy, socially just so messy and Mm. and you go and try and apply one leadership principle to that problem that you're talking about and and three or four people will see that in a completely different way so you've got to change your approach and then manage those micro leaders again it's about influence and relationships and making those relationships through your influence even sometimes one-on-one privately like
0: you did along the line absolutely building
1: building a fan base well the interesting thing about going down the line that I didn't tell you, every single person expected that as well. Right. I got it to such a point. This is right at the end of our tour. Yeah. So every single guy knew, I'm freezing cold. I've been sitting here now for 10 minutes. But I know that Bram is going to walk down that line and tell me what's going on at some point.
0: That's the important part. That's actually the important part. So that's the um, predictive vulnerability, isn't it?
1: I like it. But Mm. but BC. To go back to your story, I know we're jumping around a bit, but to mm. go back to your story about our numbers are bad in this business, and it's the leader who d- then disappears, and yet they've built maybe they've built this reputation of saying everything and talking about it, but then if they disappear, that just exacerbates that problem.
0: And that's because humans are messy, and leaders are messy too.
1: Humans, are le- humans, leaders—we're all because
0: messy. there's so much going on in that situation for mm. you because mm. you've got a whole lot of other, and you know so much more than you're mm. ever going to share.
1: Yeah and and also rumor and innuendo yeah. is probably an extension of our genetic makeup from times of apes where we don't we now don't pick lice out of each other's hair or off the back of their shoulders and then crack it in front of them which is what apes do in order to be liked by other apes it's yeah. hey i'm giving you this gift well yes. now now what we do is we stand around the water bubbler have you heard insert any other yeah. unsolicited rumor yeah And I'm giving. When I say that to you, I'm giving you a gift. So the leader's job is to not let that occur. Conversation, not denigration. So there's a requirement to try and stop each other from picking lice out of their hair, and and give them
0: that could be a company policy. I think keep keep the lice picking. There's something there you're saying about a gift. I think it's more. For me, it's understanding what's the real currency in this place. Mm. So, is it gossip, or is it the the trading of information, or is it here? I'll give you one of my leads, and you do this. It, it's really getting into the organisation and figuring out what's the currency here. Mm. And I can't change things till I really recognise that. Yeah.
1: In in the example I'm giving, people want to be liked, of course, by their peers. Mm. And if you don't set up a culture where they can mutually support each other, and and provide some sort of value. Then they find other ways to do it, and rumor and gossip fills that void. We had that problem in the platoons. We yeah, had that right. problem in the national CT team. Yeah, we have you know we have those problems too. So you've got to keep everyone on edge and moving.
0: Circling back to the military for you, with mm. a you know distinguished service, an incredible career. Mm. When were the times that your mental toughness was challenged?
1: Mm. Great question. All the time. Mm. Most days and. For me, you have a cup and that cup has so much mental toughness in it and you pour a little bit out all the time and then you reset and then your resilience comes in. They're different, right? Mm. And so I'm of the opinion that resilience is something that is genetic In some parts, it's epigenetic a little bit. You can Mm -hmm. switch it on, switch it off in some parts. How much sleep you've had the night before, your current diet, your fitness level, all of these things show your depth of resilience. It's what you bring to the party right now, today, Mm. at this very moment. So if my cat had died today, I may have fared better yesterday because I may have slept better the night before. Mental toughness, however, is all about frames of reference It's having done something arduous and difficult previously for you to look back on and go, this isn't that tough. I survived it. Right. And then your physical fitness above that provides a buffer before you have to reach into your mental toughness. Yep. So the three of them, I want to say it's in a cylinder, but it's not. It's like resilience is all around it. Mm -hmm. Mental toughness permeates through it Mm -hmm. and your fitness is almost an inoculation to a point. Again, it's, I think it's really complex but it's a beautiful thing and you can work on any of those three. But I think the key one to work on is the mental toughness piece, to do something difficult, to do things difficult often, to put yourself in arduous situations and scary situations. Go parachuting, go rock climbing, do all those. No, you're shaking. No. <laughs> but, but to do things that make you scared. You know? And
0: that can be cognitive.
1: Oh, absolutely. Fit, because,
0: yeah. you know, one of the things I think of often as a leader mm. is, be brave.
1: Mm.
0: Actually, to do this thing, to transform this, to be innovative, mm. I'm going to have to be brave, mm. and and that's a certain mental toughness, right?
1: And I see, I continue to see. I want I want to say cowardice, but that's a it's a too harsh a statement. I continue to see leaders shy away from the courageous conversations that would have made their yeah. their subordinates better. And I think it's really they should be guilty. You know, they they should yeah. have guilt and resentment for that. That's what have,
0: Pat Lenchoni says. He okay. says you're not being kind to the person. No. You're actually doing yeah. them a disservice by not yeah. having and, that conversation. Yeah, and it
1: comes back to preparation, communication, positivity. Prepare yourself for that for that debrief or that performance appraisal. Really prepare yourself for it and then come into it yeah. from a position of humility and say, hey, your performance hasn't been great and I'm sorry because I think I've let you down because I haven't done this for you. Now what can I do to help you? Yeah. Like, yeah. It just If you come at something like that, yeah, someone else is is not going to be defensive.
0: Yeah, it's mm. really good. I've met some really interesting people this year, really interesting people, right. and some of the biggest thought leaders there are. You know, Jim Collins, Pat Lencioni. Oh wow! Yeah, I've I've had an amazing year, mm. and and it's been fantastic meeting you too, Bram. Oh, because thank what you. a what a you said Jim great. Collins and my name yeah, within ten I'm, seconds. That's yeah, amazing. Pat, Pat Bram. There you go. Uh, Bram Connolly, thank Mm, you so much for your time and what Mm. a a wonderful story. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. So that's Tech Live for today. CEOs are in the business of making decisions and leadership is the art of execution. I'm Stephanie Christopher and look forward to talking to you next time.